It's good to see you all today on the 4th of July. All right, thank you for being here today. It's a tremendous honor and privilege to preach the word and to pastor this church. I consider this task and this church to be one of the greatest honors of my life. So if you have your Bible, turn in those to John chapter 13. That's where we will be for our scripture reading today. John chapter 13, and we will read from verses 31 through 38. And today we enter back in... To the upper room, we are there this morning. Judas has left in verse 31, and we sit around the table with the other 11 true disciples learning from our Savior and trying to understand what it means to become a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And today we'll see three traits of what it means to be a true follower of Christ. Notice John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. Therefore, when the traitor, or Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But Simon Peter interjected and said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus, I'm sure shaking his head at this moment, he says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, where, where can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will crow until you deny me three times. Amen. Thank you. Lord, I pray for this morning. Um, Lord, I know a lot of uh, people are, are traveling today and uh, vacationing and enjoying the weather outside and And Lord, I just pray today that we would remember that we are here to glorify and to worship you. And Lord, we thank you for our country, but Lord, I pray that we would remember who we truly worship. That we worship our God and our Creator and our Savior, not the country that you have blessed us with. Lord, bless be with today. I I pray that your word would go forth, that it would shape our lives and let it mold us. I thank you for our church, I thank you for our country, I thank you for the gospel and our Savior and your word, and I pray that it would go forth and change our lives. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Today I titled my sermon, Becoming Peter, whereas last week was kind of becoming Judas, today is Becoming Peter, but you could also aptly name this message, Becoming a True Disciple. So for the next couple of weeks, kind of what we plan to discuss is, first off, what does it look like to become Judas was last week, and then what does it mean to become Peter? And because Peter proves himself to be a true disciple by one action that we see in our passage today. But this morning is going to be a little bit different. Today I want to actually unpack the kind of theology of being a true disciple. And then I want to begin to unpack the traits of what it means to be a true disciple. So where we are going this morning is the theology of being a true follower of Christ. And then when I speak again, part two will be uh, 
kind of what I discuss in part two today of the traits of being a true disciple. Before we look at our passage today, let us kind of quickly remember the context of the Gospel of John. If you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four Gospel accounts of how we kind of compile the story and the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of look at things from a different, for all from the same angle. But they all have different purposes in mind. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus is the Messiah to provide the kingdom program of God. Mark writes to a Roman audience to prove Jesus is the Son of God and to provide Jesus' discipleship method. Luke writes to Gentiles to prove Jesus is the Savior to all, providing a historical account for Jesus' earthly ministry. And as we know, John writes... John chapter 20, verse 31, he writes to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, sent to provide salvation, that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God to pay for the sins of the world. And what is the message of John? That those who will trust and believe in him as Savior will have eternal life. Two weeks ago, we began the Upper Room Discourse. We entered into a room with the other 12 disciples And if you remember the setting of our story, Jesus has less than 24 hours to live. It's it's Thursday before the Friday that he is crucified. And all of the truths that he gives in the upper room in John 13, 14, 15, and 16 with a prayer attached in John 17, this whole section he gives to his 12 disciples, but also to the disciples that follow his. And if you remember the story uh, two weeks ago, Jesus, I would imagine, weary from the discussion and the arguments of his disciples over there jockeying for position in the kingdom of God. He probably is convinced that they still don't get it yet, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So then what does he do to show them what it means to be a true follower of Christ? He gets up from dinner, he walks outside, he grabs the water pot and a bowl, and he washes the feet of the disciples to example to them what it truly means to be like Christ. That through serving his disciples, he not only demonstrates an example of service, but he also demonstrates his timeless agape love. The question we answered a couple weeks ago is why and how do we demonstrate love to others? That because of Christ's love, we demonstrate our love by serving others in practical ways. And then last week, we unpacked a message that I've never preached before. It's probably not a very popular message that preachers get to speak on. But last week we entered the mind of a murderer. To the mind of Judas Iscariot, to the one who betrayed his Savior. And we slowly watched his slide. From being a man that walked with Jesus for three years to the man that slowly became disillusioned with the gospel, with the truth. And to become the man that would sell out his savior for the price of a slave for 30 pieces of silver. And the question I had last week is how in the world could this happen? I mean, how could a man that sat at the feet of the son of God for three years possibly betray him for a measly 30 pieces? It started in his heart with disappointment with God that Judas had this kind of dream of how his life would unfold. And then slowly over the three years, he became disillusioned. He became disappointed with the plan of God. And then slowly he dismissed the truth that Jesus provided for him in all of the discourses and all of the miracles. And then 
coupled with the determinations of the enemy, he, Judas, slowly dismissed and betrayed his Savior. And it led to his physical and spiritual death. There was a first Judas, and there have been millions since. The warning that I gave to us last week with the life of Judas is that any one of us could become just like him, that none of us are immune. The possibility for you to become Judas is not the question. The question is, will we become one? We all face disappointment with God. Amen? And we all face difficulties. We all have this picture of the way our life should turn out. And when God doesn't provide us, that is when we begin to slowly build up our walls of bitterness and resentment towards the Lord. And we slowly exit stage left. How can we avoid becoming Judas? We realize the four steps of becoming, of becoming a betrayer, a betrayal, disappointment with God leads to dismissal of truth. Coupled with the determination of an enemy leads to our walking away. But whereas we saw Judas last week, we saw we entered the man that betrayed the Savior for the price of a slave. Today we see the opposite, in fact. We see what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And can I just speak a little bit? When I speak next, what I want to do is really unfold the story of a man that proved to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating about the story that we see of a man, a man that betrays Jesus before the rooster crows is that he proves that he is a true disciple, whereas Judas proves that he is a false one. So today we kind of see the contrast before, between their two stories. We see today the theology of what it means to be a true disciple, and then we see the traits of what it means to be one as well. So that is... Where I'm going this morning is the theology and the traits of being a true disciple. You know, um, as I have prepared the message over the last couple of weeks, there are a lot of faces of different people that I've known in my life that come to mind. And what's kind of a sad reality of life is I've probably known about as many Judas's, as I've known Peter's, the faces of Judas's that, that walked with the Lord for a season of time, that walked away, the faces are no longer one or two, but now they have become a crowd. As I mentioned last week, the faces of Jeff, Abby, Michael, Sarah, Matt, Ashley, Bert, Brett, Sean, to just to name a few. But a couple weeks ago, I approached a Peter. I approached a man that is not perfect like Peter that we see in this text and far beyond. But I approached a man that has proven himself to be a true disciple. His name is Justin. And he is one of my very closest and dearest friends. And he was a member of the youth group here when I was at Calvary Bible Church. And when I was seeing all of these people walk away from the Savior of the world, you know, I, I just, and I approached this young man, he's my age, and I, I just said to him, I said, why did you stay? You know, why did you remain faithful to the task, faithful to the gospel? Because I thought about Justin's story. He has faced difficulty like I have. He had this dream of the way his life would turn out, and I'm sure it hasn't the way he dreamed, that he's faced financial hardships. He's faced a troubled adoption and multiple miscarriages. And so I just approached him quite frankly, and I said, what has caused you to remain faithful to Jesus. And he said to me, Byron, it is the only source of hope in this world. He's right. 
that as Justin looks into the darkness of the world and the hopelessness that it has, that he said to me that it is the only source of hope. It is the only source of truth that he sees. And that is why he stands firm. And I, and I said to him, Amen, brother, because that is so true. That the scripture, that the gospel that we see so plainly in the text of the gospel of John is the only source of hope. It is the only source of light in the midst of all of the darkness and the hopelessness of the world. Friends, will you receive that? Will you hold that? Because I imagine today that you will face difficulties if you have not already. And you would say, you know, Byron, I had this picture of how the truth of the scripture, how God should bless me in my life. And the question when you face difficulty is this, will you become Judas or will you be Peter? Will you be Peter? Will you face the difficulties and the sin of your life and will you stand firm? That is the question I have for you today. And today we unpack the theology of being a true disciple and the traits that make one so. So what does it mean? The question I'm kind of answering today, if you have your notes, is uh, what does it mean to be a true disciple, both theologically and also thematically? So first, let us kind of dive deep into the theology of what it means to be a true disciple. And kind of what I wanted to do this morning is I want to establish kind of the walls of what it means for what what the walls of what every true disciple should believe in now before i really go deep into each theological doctrine i want you to think about the idea of a wall okay like drywall like that brick wall right there what is what do walls serve as some of them are structural but really if you think about a wall walls are very important because they keep unwanted people out that's why you have walls around your house and it keeps you from unwanted injury for example i have young children and that's why i look extra tired this morning if i look tired recently you know why because i have three little girls that stole my heart and they're going to spend all my money um what little I have. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, uh, but if you, I think about whenever my children start to crawl, what do we always establish? We place them inside a pack and play or a crib, and then when they begin to crawl in the hallway, I put a baby gate on the top of the stairs. Why? So that they do not go tumbling down the stairs. The theological walls that I'm going to construct here this morning are going to be pretty brief. I'm not going to spend uh, the whole 30 minutes on these doctrinal walls, but the reason I'm establishing them is so that you and I would avoid theological injury. So what is the theology behind a true disciple? Doctrine number one, wall number one, is penal substitutionary atonement. Now what does that mean? A true disciple believes that Jesus paid the penalty for their sin by substitutionary atonement or payment through his blood, that Jesus is the only perfect substitute for my sin. He is a spotless lamb of God, which the Father imputed the sins of the world upon him. Doctrinal wall number two is eternal security. What do I mean by that? That once saved, always saved. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you cannot lose your salvation. Think about this. Just philosophically for just a second. If I do nothing to earn it, then what can I do to lose it? 
track with me. Then doctrinal wall number three is justification by faith and not by works. That our legal standing before God is paid in full by the blood of Christ and that we become justified means we become declared innocent of our sin before the Father by the blood of Christ when we enter into salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And then doctrinal wall number four is this. This one's the most controversial of them all. Salvation necessitates sanctification. Salvation necessitates sanctification. In other words, what? That salvation necessitates change. There's this um, false view of the gospel that if we... I'm treading on thin ice, and quite frankly, if you have a problem, sorry. (laughs) I'm just saying it anyway. Okay. There's this theological doctrine that kind of goes around, and I don't know if anybody would formally actually say this or not, but that if we pray a sinner's prayer that we're saved, but then I don't have to change anything about my life. We are not saved by works, but because I am saved, I do good works. That there must be an internal change in my life that shows up externally and manifesting its way out of me. What does it say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10? For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let us not, can I just speak, let us not cheapen the gospel to just think that it's fire insurance, but it's something that changes our lives. So those are the four doctrinal walls that we must live within. Penal substitutionary atonement, eternal security, justification by faith and not by works, and that sanctification, salvation necessitates sanctification. So why is all that important when we talk about the contrast between a false disciple, which was Judas, and a true one? Let's just ask the question, what about all the Judases in our life? What about all those people that we have seen that follow God for a time and then walk away? There are two possible, if you live within this theological wall, okay, there are two possibilities for people that become Judas, that seem to follow for a time and then walk away. Possibility number one of all the Judases is that they were never believers to begin with. I think that's probably more likely the case is that if we see people that follow Jesus for a time, and then all of a sudden just walk away like Judas, that they were probably not Christians to begin with. But then there's a second possibility, that people who truly are saved, if they cannot lose their salvation, then they become carnal, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Perhaps you today have been like Peter. Peter, at the end of John chapter 13, for a time it is predicted that he becomes carnal, that he betrays the Savior, that he denies the Son of God three times before the rooster crows. Perhaps in your life you have seen this personally, where there was just a season where your heart was hard toward the gospel. And probably what was God doing the entire time that you were hardened? He was pursuing you, causing you, calling you to follow him again. Listen to this thought from a scholar. I don't like to read big paragraphs like this when I preach because it's a little arduous. 
but I'm going to do it anyways because I feel like it's very important. This scholar adds this, the difference between a, a, non, a false disciple and a true one. The key thing to understand is that while a Christian can be for a time carnal, seen in 1 Corinthians 3, a true Christian will not remain carnal for a lifetime. Some have abused the idea of a carnal Christian by saying that it is possible for people to come to faith in Christ and then proceed to live the rest of their lives in a completely carnal way with no evidence of being born again. Such a concept is unbiblical. James 2 makes it abundantly clear that genuine faith always results in good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 declares that while we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, that salvation will result in works. Can a Christian become carnal? Yes. But will a true Christian remain carnal? The answer is no. I bring all that theology up so that we can understand through a lens of all of the Judases that we've seen in our life. What was the possibility that we are not Christians to begin with or that the Lord is pulling on their heart? There is a gentleman in my life that I am very close to that is a carnal Christian because every time I meet with him for lunch, I see the Lord working on his life and pulling him back to the faith. A false disciple is Judas and a true disciple is Peter. So that's kind of the theological realm that we have to kind of put up to kind of help us understand and distinguish between a true and a false one. But then now let us kind of turn the page and look at the traits of a true disciple. Because what I see in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38, I see three traits for every true follower of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible, notice them with me. I like to do this at the beginning of my message, just to kind of help us from a bird's eye perspective, understand kind of where we are going in the scripture. If you have your text with you, I would encourage you to open a hard copy. There's one in front of you, you do not have one. John 13, 31-38, if you could break it down into sections of the text, what would you break it down as? I see kind of three main sections to the text. You see verses 31 through 33 is one trait. 34 through 35 is a second trait. And verses 36 through 38 is a third trait of being a true follower of Jesus Christ. So notice with me verses 31 through 33. Notice the text with me, if you would. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man to be glorified. And God is glorified in him. Notice that. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Notice that word immediately. Little children. He's talking to the disciples here. They're not little children, but spiritually they are. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. How can you... What is the first trait of a true disciple? Trait number one is a purpose, is understanding our purpose in life. Notice verse 31 and 32. There are really two different phrases that are intertwined in these two verses. It says, now is the Son of Man to be glorified, and then God is glorified in him. And then notice the last phrase of verse 32, and will glorify him immediately. Those are the three phrases that really explain the concept behind that. But if you notice with me, this is kind of an intertangled web of logic here. And if you notice with me the timing that is here in verses 31, it says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. The word glorified there is a passive voice, which means the action of verb 
action of the verb is being done to the subject. So the Son of Man is glorifying the Father. The Father is glorifying the Son. And the Father will glorify the Son immediately. When will the Son of Man be glorified immediately? What is he talking about there? That Jesus is crucified, he is led, then he is resurrected, and then he ascends, and then he is exalted, and then there is a coronation service. That Jesus becomes the Son of Man that is prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, notice past tense, the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and then every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to notice again in John chapter 13, what does Jesus call himself, the title he calls himself. It is the most frequent and most used title that Jesus gives himself in all four gospel accounts. He calls himself the Son of Man, which we know from previously in the Gospel of John that this refers to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, to the Son of God, the King over all, that the King will rule in everlasting dominion over all nations and peoples. And then notice the timing of his coronation. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Notice the timing there. Is it past, present, or future? This is what confused me. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Greek verbs here in the original language are actually quite difficult because it's not the present tense that is found in this phrase. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is actually the aorist tense. The aorist tense is a past event that is completed. So when you kind of combine this present tense idea with his heiress, what is he kind of seeing? That when Jesus dies, resurrects, ascends, exalted, and is coronated, that there is a timeless effect, that he will be the Son of Man forever. But then notice, what do you think that the disciples hear when they listen to the words that Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified? If you are a disciple in the first century, what do you hear when you hear your Savior and the Son of God to say that? You think that the kingdom of heaven is on earth right now. Now, we've talked about this, so I'm not going to unpack it a ton, but they are completely warped by their Jewish secular culture. They think that Jesus has come to establish an earthly kingdom and kick out the Romans. And so when they hear that now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, all they're thinking is, okay, 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 now, I've been waiting for three years, I've been walking around the countryside with this man named Joshua, so that I could be part of the kingdom of God, and he, Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. Notice verse 33, little children, I am with you a little while longer, you will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come Jesus, again, knows what they expect. They do not expect him to die, to be crucified, and to be raised again, and to sin, and be exalted and coronated. They expect him to establish his earthly kingdom right then and there. And that's why Peter still doesn't get in, verses 36 through 38. Peter offers himself that he's willing to die, but Peter... As has been seen in the upper room, we see that the disciples are really in it for themselves. 
what is Jesus? What is Jesus' ministry all about? What is he consumed for since the beginning to glorify his Father? What have the disciples been consumed with to glorify themselves? Because even in the upper room earlier, we discussed that the disciples are really just in it for themselves. That's why Judas walks away. is because he does not inherit the second place in the kingdom that he thinks is going to happen. Because this very night, the disciples argued amongst themselves of who is going to be the greatest, which is why Jesus got up and he washed their feet to demonstrate that it is the servant of all that is going to be the greatest. What is Jesus consumed with? He is consumed with glorifying the Father. What are the disciples consumed with? They are consumed with glorifying themselves with their own glory. What Peter and the other ten disciples struggled to understand at this moment is they struggled to understand that their life, the first trait of every true follower of Christ, their purpose is to glorify God. A true disciple's purpose is to glorify God. What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31? You probably will recognize this verse. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, that a true follower of Jesus Christ must be consumed for the glory of God. But let's just be frank. What are we often consumed with? We so often are consumed with glorifying ourselves. I mean, we live in America after all, okay? I mean, capitalism 101, keeping up with the Joneses. We are so often, as Christians, just because we're sinful, we make mistakes, we are so consumed with glorifying ourselves. We need bigger and better. If you lived in Texas, that they would say that everything is bigger in Texas, okay? And it kind of is, okay? And they probably have the debt to show it, okay? So we love bigger houses, bigger cars, bigger churches, But a true disciple is not consumed for the glory of themselves, but must be consumed for the glory of God. But what does that mean? I've heard all my life that we are here to glorify God. But what does that mean? I uh, went to Westminster Christian Academy growing up, and the very first catechism was this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, But I still never really understood what that means. That The true disciples are really in it for themselves at this moment, but a true disciple is in it to glorify the Lord. So what does that mean? When you take the totality of Scripture, when you look at the different passages where you see the glory of God, Exodus chapter 33 and 34, when you look at Isaiah chapter 6, when you look at Jesus' ministry, the purpose of a follower is to glorify God And what does that mean? To glorify God means to lift Him up, in a sense. It means to worship, to obey, and to become like Him. If you were to actually look at Exodus chapter 33 and 34, that we know the glory of God because of His attributes. That a follower of Jesus Christ must glorify God by exuding the attributes of God. Love, compassion, mercy, patience, grace, Self-control. 
What it means to glorify God is to worship Him, to obey Him, to be like Him, to exude the attributes of God in every area of our life. The purpose of your life is to glorify God, to worship Him in everything, to obey Him in everything, and to be like Him in everything. And let's just, if we're, if we're drawing the line between a false disciple and a true disciple, then let me just be blunt. If you're not, if you do not think about glorifying God in your life, then you probably aren't a true follower of His. God is not our servant. We are His. That He has given us the gospel. And that all of our lives should live, every moment of our life should be to glorify Him, to lift Him up, to become more and more like His Son, to be, to exude the very character and characteristics of God. How do we live as a true disciple? Trait number one, the purpose of a true follower is to glorify God. But before I move on to trait number two, let us just ask you the question. If you could boil down this, if you could boil down Jesus, if you could boil down your life to one thing, to one word, what would it be? That's trait number two. Notice verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. What's the irony there? It says a new commandment, but it seems not to be. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do we live as true disciples of Christ? Trait number one, the purpose of every true follower is to glorify God. And trait number two, the proof of every true follower is love. What is the proof that you are a true Disciple, it is your love. I've already kind of pointed it out. What's the problem with, with, the, with verse 34? It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. What's the irony there? That that's not a new commandment. That is actually an old commandment to love one another. Seen out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that you shall Love your neighbor as yourself, that on these two commands, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, hinge the entire law. Now, I, I have been confused by John thirteen thirty four all of my life when he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. I've been confused because that seems to me not to be a new commandment. But it actually is. Because think about the actual, just read it with me. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What is the new commandment of that verse? The Old Testament law is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is our new standard for loving people? That's what's new about it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. The new commandment is this, that no longer is our standard of loving your neighbor as yourself, as what you would want, but our new commandment, our new standard is to love people as Christ loved us. It's quite a standard. 
And how did Jesus love us? Notice verse 1 of chapter 13. Now before the Passover feast, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the infinite capacity of God. That word end right there is the Greek word telos, which means full or fulfilled or infinite capacity. Our new commandment to love people is not what we would want in and of ourselves, but our new standard is to love people as Christ loved us, which is to the full, completely selfless. Allow me to just be blunt. Um, if, we, if we can't love people, then we should not claim to be a Christian. If you cannot love people, then please do not go into church leadership. If you cannot love people, then we have no business claiming to be a true disciple. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. The proof, the mark, the evidence that you are his is love, but not what you would want in the same circumstances, but that how he has loved you. Loving people is the proof that you are his. I... We are all imperfect. We all have imperfect love. Can I get an amen to that one? That you are not going to be completely selfless in your love for people. That's just a fact of life. But I find it sickening when I hear of stories of church leaders and pastors and elders and deacons of even Sunday schools of even one another where people are just bullies and mean to each other. They do not have the capacity to, of love. Listen, friends. If we cannot love people, let's keep the Christian faith to ourselves. Because by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. If you cannot love people, then you taint the cross of Christ. Let me tell you a story. I, was, uh, I used to wait tables, and I loved waiting tables. I, uh, ex- I loved waiting tables except for one day of the week. Yeah, I heard it. I hated waiting tables on Sunday. Why? Because I got the church crowd. And uh, it was interesting. We had camaraderie amongst waiters and waitresses, and we would talk about our dread of Sundays. Because what would we get right after church ended? We would get all of the Christians. And the Christians were picky. They were intolerant. They were obnoxious at times. And they were cheap. I, uh, I remember I was a young man, I was a Christian at this time, and I was waiting tables at Outback Steakhouse right there on Whitesburg Drive, and there was a group of about eight Christians at the table, and they handed me a piece of paper, and I opened my hands, and it was a gospel track, and then they said, that is the best gift you will ever have, and so I told them, you know, I'm a Christian and all this kind of stuff, I probably shouldn't have told them that, <laughs> and then when it came time for the tab, uh, they give me five bucks on a hundred. If I was a non-believer, what would I say? I would not want anything to do with the name of Christ. Because here these people are. They have shared the gospel and they have given me a track and they turned out to be cheap. They didn't display a selfless love to somebody that probably earned it. 
But I want you to notice verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. To reach the lost, we don't need more gimmicks or crusades. We don't need more tracks or strategies. We don't need more trainings or opportunities. We need more love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need more love. Love is our greatest evangelism tool. Why? Because true love is so rare. This world thinks they have an understanding of what love is, but the world's definition of love is not agape love, it is eros love. It is a love of erotic feeling and emotion. The world is starving for love. The world is starving for that one person to show them care and selflessness. They are searching for agape love. Think about it. When you were a freshman in high school or a freshman in college or whenever you were looking for your place to fit in, we've all been there. What was the one place? How did you know that you fit into a crowd? You felt love and connected, whether that love was perfect or not. The world is starving for the love that Christ has shown us and that we are to show the world. They are starving for it. Friends, the world's definition of love is one of emotion and sensuality. It's not one of selflessness. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. What does that mean? That the world is looking at us. The world is looking inside the church for a place that says that there is a Savior and that there is love that is accessible. But we have to be it. We have to show love by being selfless. Let us not be cheap. Let us not be like those Christians around that table who are so quick to present the gospel of Christ. That's a great thing. Don't get me wrong. Okay. You got to talk about it. Let's talk. But let us couple the truth of the gospel with love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That the standard of love that we are to show the people that live in the darkness of the world is not what we would want in that circumstance to love your neighbor as yourself. Our standard of love is how Christ loved us which is infinite and completely and totally selfless. A true disciple's purpose is to glorify God, and the proof that we are a true disciple is our love for people. But then notice the third trait in verses 36 through 38. I will read it. It says this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will crow until you deny me three times. In there, we see the third trait of a true follower of Jesus Christ. And we'll just have to wait till I come back. Okay, sorry. We are out of time today. 
Allow me to just be brief with the application this morning. The application is just on those first two traits of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. If a purpose of our lives is to glorify God, then the question I have is, do you? And as I mentioned, we're all imperfect. We all sin. That's why we need grace and love for each other. But that's why we need grace and love from a Savior. But the question I have is, is what area of your life isn't glorifying to the Lord? Is your home life? Is your work life? Is your thought life? Is your lack of sharing the gospel, sharing, lack of showing love to people? This week, I, the Lord was convicting me over the last week or two. I've had a verse that has been haunting my mind. And probably due to the sleep deprivation in my house and all of the exhaustion, there is First uh, Peter 3.7 that keeps popping into my mind. It says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner so that your prayers will not be hindered. The question I have is, where are we glorifying the Lord in all aspects of our life? And then number two is this, do we love people? Are we only loving people to get something from them or to give them and to show them the love of Christ? Let us not be Judas, who takes the disappointment of life and causes him to dismiss the truth, leading to his death. Let us be true disciples of Christ, to understand our purpose, to glorify God, and that show our love for one another. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Thank you for your truth. Lord, I pray that we would be uh, lights to the world, that the world would look at our love and say, I want what they got. Lord, I just uh, I thank you for my friends here today. I thank you for those that are traveling today as well. I thank you for those that tune in online. May we be true followers of Christ. May we be true disciples who are devoting our lives to the glory of God, to exuding your character, and let us love people as you loved us. That is my prayer. For those that do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would believe in you, that they would recognize their sin, and that they would trust in you as Savior. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.